Hello and welcome to another episode of Super Teams with me, David Warner, and I'm joined as ever by my good friend Jeremy Holt. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, something really interesting that happened in the Rugby World Cup at the weekend, the Wales versus Australia game. Jeremy. Hello, hi David well, and hello listeners. We're a few weeks into the Rugby World Cup now. Some exciting rugby has been played and some things have been very predictable but also one or two things which have been unexpected. And probably the match which was an unexpected result overall was Wales versus Australia and the Welsh comprehensively beating the Australian team 40 points to six. And so, David, I think it's a good opportunity for us to dive into looking at whether psychology can help us at all to understand what went on there. Yes, I think it's uh, a fascinating result. I don't know if it was maybe a record win for Wales against Australia. And quite surprising, the level of performance for Wales versus the level of performance for Australia. And we we were thinking about this uh, around issues of leadership as a starting point to try and understand how to explain this result. So we're going beyond just the way the teams played and executed their skills. Is there something here about leadership that can inform us as to what might be what might be going on? Maybe leadership off the field with the coaches and leadership on the field with the Right, that leaders. sounds like an interesting area to delve into. And uh, there's certainly been some research into uh, leadership in the context of teams, in the context of sports teams, but also business teams. And I know that sometimes our listeners like to take what we talk about in a sporting context and apply it across to, to their lives. So there has been some, some, some research in this area, which looks at the role of the official leader, the boss, if you like. So in this case, if we look at Australia and, and Wales, that would be Eddie Jones and Warren Gatland. So look at their role. But also there's been some interesting research into player leadership and how to get the right people doing the right things and, and what's the psychological mechanism for them to be effective. And if we start with the... the uh, I'm sure you'll have an opinion on Eddie Jones. <laughs> I think everybody has an opinion on Eddie Jones these days. <laughs> and of course we know Warren Gatlin quite well from his work with Wales and his work with the British Lions and comparing and contrasting their leadership styles might be an interesting place to look at uh, to look at some differences between these two teams and to speculate and hypothesize about what difference those leadership styles might make to a team. Yeah, so I suppose Eddie Jones is is quite famous for being a traditional autocratic kind of leader. So if we think about different leadership styles, one of them is to be autocratic. So an autocratic leader is someone who's very directive. Uh, everything goes through him. So if you think about how decisions are made, an auto autocratic leaders work on a hub and spoke basis. So every time a decision is made, they want to be involved in it. Every time an action is taken or a review is followed up on, they want to be involved. So information flows back to the hub and then out along the spokes to, to the members of the team. And I, I think Eddie Jones is a good example of that. The, to, to contrast that, you could have a more democratic style of leadership and also a more participative style. And, and I want to draw a 
contrast between the two of them. So a democratic style is one in which everybody has an equal say. So we're making decisions through taking votes or some sort of decision-making process that says your opinion is as valid as mine. And that's perhaps a little bit different to what we see in sporting and, and most business contexts, to be fair. But a participative style or a shared or sometimes it's called distributed leadership is, is more a style where instead of everything coming through the leader, you have people within the team who have clarity around the leadership responsibilities they can take and the roles that they can fulfill. And therefore, leadership, decision-making, um, responsibilities around things like motivation, developing cohesion, and so on, are distributed to different people within within the team. And it would be an easy comparison to make to say, well, because Australia got beaten so heavily by Wales, this a more democratic, participative style that maybe Warren Gatland follows may be more effective than Eddie Jones's more autocratic style. And yet, Eddie Jones had some considerable success with England at the last World Cup. So his style seemed to cut through and work in some ways at the last World Cup. And yet, we've got evidence here at this World Cup that with Australia, having lost to Fiji and having lost to, to Wales, it's, it's right. not working here. Is there anything... Anything you can see there? That yeah, might, well, to focus in that. on Eddie Jones to start with, because I think we can come back to Warren Gatland as by way of a contrast, and we could even contrast him to mm. other successful coaches at the moment, such as Razi Erasmus and, and Andy Farrell. Eddie Jones is famously a workaholic. He sets incredibly high standards, and he is relentless in, in what he does. And, and I don't think that he or anyone else would, disagree with that characterization of him he puts absolutely everything into it and he he sets very high standards so he expects everybody else to be as relentless as him but in amongst that what you hear are stories of times when he's not letting go so he's asking people to do the work that he does to be up at four o'clock in the morning and and on it producing information and analyses and so on very very quickly but actually, he doesn't then follow their advice. He doesn't really want their advice. He wants their decisions. So he wants their recommendations, but he wants to make the decisions. So he wants to hold that close to himself. So not very collaborative. And, and whilst it may be the case that he has a small number of people who um, he trusts to make those decisions with him, the impression you get is that he always wants to be the one who makes the final decision on everything. And and one of the suggestions from that is that working with him is very difficult and he wears people out, but somehow it, it, it's a bit joyless as well. And how do we know that? Well, he's had a very high turnover of staff and you can contrast him with, for instance, the All Black setup where they've had a very a strong continuity of staff, very low turnover of staff. In the Irish setup, there's been no turnover of staff. Andy Farrell's starting team is the, the coaches around him and supporting people, performance staff and so on, is the one that he's got now. And you see the same amongst the French these days. So, so these teams are developing something that people want to be part of, which suggests they're being more participative and giving people more skin in the game. 
Whilst Eddie Jones seems to be the kind of person who's a very hard taskmaster. Now, being a successful leader is not all about being able to uh, motivate people. It's not all about building a strong, cohesive team. Although we know those are certainly important parts of the job. There's another part, which is obviously about deciding on your strategy and tactics. So in the same as for a business, you need to have a strong strategy, but you also need to have a good culture and you need to have people who feel uh, motivated and engaged and who want to be there and who want to contribute. But without the good strategy, that doesn't give you a world-class organization well I think it's true in sport as well so I don't think anyone would argue that Eddie Jones is brilliant at analyzing rugby and creating strategies and tactics to beat teams the 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 question is is he brilliant at bringing people with him to want to buy into that and is he brilliant at developing the kind of leadership on the pitch because obviously you've got 80 minutes when he's not there when decisions have to be made is he is he brilliant at developing that kind of leadership and and probably the answer is is no he's not so but he probably found a way well he i say he probably found a way the evidence is that he found a way to make that work in 2019 whether he had enough people believing in his way to follow him and and to execute and yet here we are in 2023 with an Australian team that looked on the pitch quite leaderless in, in that game against Wales and contrasting that with the Welsh team that looked like it was full of yeah. leaders, had several leaders on the pitch. And when we also take into account that one of their main leaders, Dan Bigger, was injured very early on and had to go off and Gareth Anscombe came on and seemed to slot in seamlessly to the role and Wales continue to show leadership on the pitch and good decision-making, contrasting that with some some interesting, maybe even bizarre decision-making from Australia on the pitch early on in the game where I think they were 7-6 down and they had the chance to take a fairly straightforward penalty but decided to go for the corner and then go for a rolling ball from the, from the throw-in and that got turned over and Wales went down the other end and scored a penalty, which you could argue was one Absolutely. of the turning points of the game. And so interesting decision-making or lack of decision-making or confused decision-making, I don't know. Or maybe that was the game plan, to be aggressive. I don't know. But it certainly seemed like there was less leadership on the pitch from the Australians than there was. Right, and and so I think if you look at the Australian game, what you'd say about it was that it was less accurate, it was less well-executed than the Welsh. And so you can make an argument for kicking for the corner and going for seven points rather than three points, uh, but you have to be able to execute it afterwards. The difficulty comes if a team isn't absolutely clear about how they're going to win a game, then it starts to put doubts into the player's mind. And once you start to doubt the game plan, then you become a little bit slower and you stop doing things automatically or maybe it's that you start to do things automatically for the way that you would do it back in your club (laughs) which could be different to to this game Mm. plan one of the things that Warren Gatland seems Mm. to be very very good at is communicating what can be a complicated game very simply so that players understand what he expects of them and in a very calm and and considered way, start to buy into it. 
And so what the pundits have been talking about is that, that Gatland has brought a clear identity to the, the Welsh team. So if we look at, we'll come back, it'd be good to come back to Anscombe and, and to Donaldson and just think about the individual experiences for them because I'm really intrigued by your, your thoughts on that. Um, but just to say a bit about um, the uh, Welsh leadership, Warren Gatland. So if you look at research into leadership, um, then there's a school of thought which is uh, about identity leadership. And the main authors in this area are Steve Reicher and Alex Haslam. And there's others who obviously work alongside them. And they've looked at leadership in organisational settings around work. They've done a lot of research within healthcare sector. And they've also looked at leadership in sporting contexts. And they've developed a model which they call the CARE model. And what CARE stands for, it's an acronym, of course. So it stands for Create, Advance, Represent and Embed. And so they said basically there are four jobs that a leader has to do and, and they happen in this in this order. So the first thing is that they need to create a sense of us. So they need to start the conversations and they need to be able to lead conversations towards conclusions, so converging on an agreement about who we are and what we stand for and what we're here for. So that could be through our vision, it can be through our purpose, it can be through our values, it can be through the way we're going to organise ourselves and it's certainly got to involve what's going to give us an edge. So you need to create a sense of us and make sure that everybody in the team is part of that creation process. So it's not I create it, I tell you what it is, but what's involved is we create it together. The second thing is you need to advance that. So once you've created it, you need to put it into the way in which you train, the way in which you work together, the way you run your meetings. Everything needs to be advanced. So your goals, your measurements, your metrics, all those things need to align with the sense of us that we've created and what's going to give us an edge. Then you need to represent it. So you need to be a, a role model of it. You need to live your life in that way. The decisions that you make need to be consistent with that. The things that you say need to be consistent with that. And then the final thing is that you embed it. And embed it means that you create processes and systems and structures that enable you to bring it to life. That sense of us, that, that clarity around who we are and what we stand for. And, and of course, Warren Gatlin's had a lot of experience of doing that when he's been setting up Lions tours where he's got a short period of time with very diverse players from four different countries. And he, in a short period of time, he needs to give them that kind of clarity and, and create all of the cohesion that goes with, with the, the, as a consequence of that identification with us. Whereas probably Eddie Jones has a different way. He doesn't do those things. So coming back to Anscombe and, and Donaldson, there's an environmental factor here. So it may be that Anscombe is walking onto the pitch. And the story of Anscombe is a fantastic story because he was injured. He's been out with injuries for a long time. He made a bit of a comeback. He found it difficult to regain his form. He's gone away again. He's really worked on his 
physical presence. He walks out on the pitch. He's absolutely ripped. He's obviously been in the gym and, and he misses his first penalty kick, but then he steadies himself and he slots every kick after that. And he's really authoritative when, as, as, as he's running the, the match. Played extremely well. But is he stepping into back into an environment which makes that easier because there's a lot of clarity for him? As opposed to maybe for Donaldson, he's not quite sure where it's going. He's not quite sure what we're all about. And, and a few things start to go wrong and it discombobulates for him. Um, what do you think from, from an individual psychological perspective that would be like for Anscombe, first of all? Well, as we know, the security centre of the brain, the part of the brain that wants to keep us safe, will be on high alert because anybody stepping into a role like that, particularly unexpectedly, will want to do a good job and may be fearful of a failing, a failure. And so what we're looking for with athletes, and you can apply this to business as well, is, is how do you manage that fear? Because the fear is quite natural within us. We, we, we're going to feel some kind of fear or insecurity in situations that, that are threatening to us, that are perceived to be psychologically threatening, if not physically threatening to us. So how do you manage that fear? And do you have the skills to manage that fear? Because what we want any sports individual to do, and any individual in any walk of life to do, is to be able to tap into the knowledge that they have, to tap into the the training, the repetition, and the skills that they have ingrained in, in them, both physically and psychologically. But with fear getting in the way, then we won't be able to tap into those skills so effectively. So what we saw was a player who maybe showed a little bit of that fear on the first penalty, but quite quickly got into a position where, from what we could observe, the fear was well managed to the point where he was in such an automatic mode his decision making was uh pretty pretty excellent really for the rest of the game uh and he was playing percentage rugby uh taking uh penalty kicks where it made sense to take penalty kicks playing for touch where it made sense to play for touch and playing playing a percentage game so that's what we saw and i suppose the question is why did he feel like that and what we can start to look at is potentially this idea of psychological safety. So is he stepping into an environment where you're stepping into a hostile environment because you're against the opposition, but you've also got your own teammates and they have a part to play as well. So if you're stepping into an environment where not only do you feel the opposition are hostile, but your own teammates are hostile, that's going to be pretty difficult to psychologically right. manage yourself. But what if you step into an environment where the opposition are hostile, but the the teammates are seen as friendly, are seen as helpful. And that's what you'd hope is happening in a team. It doesn't always happen in a team, but that's what you'd hope. So let's say you have a team where everybody is supportive, where people are non-judgmental, where people understand that you are there to do the best that you can. And that you may fail. You may not get that kick. But if you don't get that kick, the blame isn't going to come your way. Support is going to come your way. And encouragement is going to come your way. And also holding you to account if you do something that's against the game plan, for example. You know you're going to be held to account fairly around getting you back into playing the game plan that has been agreed. So 
so agreements are upheld by everybody and understood by everybody. So if agreements have been made about the way we're going to play and agreements have been made about the way we're going to support each other, then when you step into that environment, that makes it psychologically a huge amount easier um, to manage the natural fearful emotions that, that yeah. you may have. So I think that's what we saw. I mean, we can't know for sure because we weren't there. All we can do is see the see what we saw on TV. And I think what we saw is somebody who wasn't crippled by fear, who wasn't paralyzed by an inability to make decisions and worrying about what if the decisions were wrong. We We saw somebody who stuck to a game plan and played very effectively. So I think we can analyze that and say... There was a lot of support coming both from his teammates and probably, almost certainly, from the touchline as well. Let's just do that then. So if you were uh, working with a team and you wanted to create that kind of environment where there's psychological safety, which leads to greater resilience, which means that people are less fearful and and therefore better able to Mm. play to their potential, whatever that potential is, what sort of things would you be Mm. doing? Well, I think... Certainly one of the things is to accept that no one makes a mistake on purpose, but people will make mistakes. Errors will occur because this is sport and the the role of the opposition is to force you into errors. So errors will occur. No one's no one's there to deliberately make an error. So what do we do when an error occurs? So it's not if, because that's too much pressure to say we won't have errors. It's when an error occurs, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to that? Let's reach some agreements. Let's talk about that openly and honestly, how hard it is to play some of these intense sports that, that, that people play and what are we going to do when mistakes occur? And, we, and we'll agree that as a team. And that will be around supporting the individual on the pitch, encouraging the individual on the pitch. But also, crucially, the touchline has a great huge role to play in this if you see people on the touchline throwing their hands up turning their heads turning their backs that's one thing if you see people on the touchline clapping encouraging maybe even smiling appropriately not laughing at somebody but smiling and and trying to help the individual relax that's another thing so I think you can start to create agreements around not just how you want to play tactically, but how you want to be as a group and how you want to support each other and encourage each other. And and practice this, crucially practice this in training because it's hard to sometimes override the natural, the natural tendency that we have as human beings to criticise, to judge. And so starting to talk about what the effect that judgment has on people and how to manage that. And another point is to talk to each individual about what they individually need, because some athletes might say, I do need, I do need shouting at, and it does help me. And other athletes will say to you know, to the other end of the scale, I need someone to come put their, their arm around my shoulder and tell me it's okay. And when you then get, in a team like rugby where you've got, I don't know, 30 players in the squad or something, you think about the number of social interactions there are there. And what we really ideally want to to do is get to a point where every athlete understands every other athlete's needs, particularly in times of crisis. 
Now, that's a huge amount of work to do that. And that requires a lot of talking, a lot of discussion, a lot of honesty, because we'll get a lot of bravado. Oh, I don't need any help. I'll be OK. But they, everyone does need help. Right. Not everyone's OK. So when you start to get that level of honesty, you can have those conversations. And, and also in those conversations, it's not just do I need help, but it's also can I offer help? And and so there is a there's a kind exactly. of mutuality to it if the conversations are run effectively. So with teams that you've worked with, are these are the kinds of conversations that you would initiate. How would how would you go about that? Yeah, I mean the, you're you're right about that f- that first point about how can I help? Human beings generally are innately quite helpful people, quite helpful creatures. We tend to want to help somebody that's struggling. If you go to a performance, I don't know, at the at the theatre and somebody's struggling, you feel for them. You feel for them. You want them to succeed. Uh, and so we do want to help. So we're, we're at a good starting point. We're at a good starting point. It's, it's not easy to just launch straight into those conversations about, okay, you're all vulnerable people. Let's talk. Let's all talk about our vulnerabilities. I think it's certainly in my experience, it takes time. It takes time to get to know the team and for the team to get to know each other. So as a practitioner, it takes time for the practitioner to get to know the team enough to be able to initiate those conversations. And also it takes time for the team to get to know each other enough to feel uh, comfortable in having those conversations. But as a practitioner, you want to create a safe environment to start off with. So them getting to know you and how you work and understanding that you respect confidentiality when they talk to you individually and you don't repeat that kind of stuff that they talk to you privately about in public helps. Social activities massively help for people getting to know each other and gradually introducing this idea of vulnerability and testing the water right. as you go, particularly in a, in a male-dominated environment where it sounds a bit stereotypical, but males may not want to reveal their vulnerabilities. That's that you have to test the water as you go along to not to make sure because if you bring it in too soon and it gets rejected, yeah. you've blown it for a bit anyway, and you have to build up to it again. So it's picking your moment and it takes yeah, time. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there's been some research on an approach which is about personal disclosure and mutual sharing, that's called. And so the idea of this is that you set up a conversation where you work your way around the room and everybody is asked to disclose something about themselves and that the, the mutual sharing of this has a positive. So what the research shows, it has a positive impact on cohesion and on people's positive feelings about relationships. But as you say, it needs to be done in a way that's contextualized so that it, it feels comfortable because you may go into places where um, people are getting quite emotional uh, whilst that's going on. Now, I know that some teams have made this part of their routines or, or their rituals, so they've ritualized this. So the All Blacks, for instance, with their initiation of new players, will ask them to say what they are going to bring to the team, what they are prepared to sacrifice from the, for the team, and, and what they hope to get from being part of the team 
and and so there is this kind of disclosure which comes early on and it's very much about values it's about it's about vision it's about values and about standards and personal behavior i know there's a rugby coach called i think his name's craig white who has worked with a number of international teams and he has taken this really to quite extreme measures where he works with groups of men who go off into the mountains and spend time together really trying to create a safe environment for self-disclosure and exploration of how they feel and what it's like to be a man in 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 this environment and he was he was his background is fitness coaching and he's worked at international level and people say that what he does can be quite transformational so that's probably at one extreme and then there's different steps along along that continuum to no disclosure yeah, I think on a practical level, something I could maybe offer the listeners because they might be working in business and they might not be in a team that is as psychologically evolved as the All Blacks and they might not be able to take their team members to a mountain <laughs> and talk to them in a, in a, in a way that <laughs> they've created a psychologically safe space. One thing I think pe- one thing that we found worked, and it's very simple, and I think this is something that anyone could really do, any team could really do, we are storytellers at heart. Human beings tell stories. We like to tell stories. And very often you'll be in a team of a group of people and you really know very little about them. You know something about what they do in training and you know something about what they do in a match and you know something about how they react after the match and you might know something about how they how they behave in a team meeting and a, a video analysis session and so on and so forth and you might know one or two of the players personally and but that might be as far as it goes and what we found is if you if you get people in a room if you get the team in the room and ask them to tell a story about themselves ask them to tell the group something that the group may not know about them and you can make that as safe as you as safe as you can to say don't reveal anything that you feel is uncomfortable or that would be challenging for you just tell tell the tell the group something about you something that they don't already know or that most of them don't already know and so you might get one of the athletes saying oh i used to do horse riding and everybody looks at them and say i didn't know that tell me tell me more what's that all about and then they would talk about their love of horse riding and and their affection for horses and you start to see a, a part of the individual that you just haven't ever seen before and just by doing that simple thing of uh, asking people to tell a little bit of a story about themselves, you start to find out a little bit about everybody. And you, pra- you repeat that over time and people might be comfortable revealing a little more. And when you feel you've got to a point where people are A, really getting to know each other and B, re- are really relatively comfortable about telling more stories about themselves, we might then be able to move into area of talking about their vulnerabilities to tell me a story about the time you you felt vulnerable how did you cope with it what did you need what do you need now and so you can build up to to that kind of honesty through storytelling i think that's that's and i think any any group out there right and i think the message is that it's a really worthwhile thing to do to invest some time into particularly if you are going to be moving into a high pressure situation you don't want to be having people making up stories about each other, trying to explain what's going on when the pressure's on. 
So we don't know, of course, whether this is the kind of work that, that someone like Warren Gatland does. But when you look at the what, what appears to be a, a fairly safe environment that he's created quite quickly, it makes you think that he's got some sort of techniques which enable him to get there. And one hope, one would hope that those would be informed by science and evidence and research rather than something that he's just made up as he's gone along. I'm sure it is the case. Uh, and we saw this actually with Gareth right. Southgate and Pippa Grange because when Pippa Grange was working with the author of Fearless, when she was working with Gareth Southgate, one of the big things that they were very hot on was this idea of 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 storytelling talking about what we stand for talking about what our own ex life experiences are and what's important to us and if you you may remember one of the things that they implemented during the russia world cup in 2018 was a debrief of the match even if this took place took place at three o'clock in the morning if the match was a late match was to sit the players around and to say basically ask each player how was the match for you what was your experience of the match tell me your story of the match and that just again created an environment where people were able to be honest about what they experienced and and how it felt for them not just a factual analysis of the match but what it really meant to them to win or to lose and to score a goal to give away a goal etc etc so it just creates a greater level of understanding within and trust within your teammates therefore reinforcing this sense of psychological safety and this has to be facilitated of course you have to be careful that people aren't revealing something that they find psychologically unsafe or if they do right. how do you manage that and if you create that environment of psychological safety then when you go out onto the pitch with your teammates who you trust and who you know that they trust you, it's got to be a lot easier to perform than if you're going out there with a group of people. That you're so, so let's take that as a point to, to switch our focus away from Gareth Anscombe and, and his very calm and successful performance and to turn the spotlight onto Ben Donaldson, the Australian number 10 fly half. And just to give a little bit of context to this, so Eddie Jones selected his team and in his team he only selected one out-and-out -out genuine number 10, only one fly-half, and that was Carter Gordon. Uh, and so that's one fly-half out of 33 players in the, in the squad. And there were some very experienced and capable people that he left behind, in particular Bernard Foley and Quade Cooper, both of whom who have dozens and dozens and dozens of test matches and have paid, played in previous Rugby World Cups. Number 10 is a very difficult position because it's a very pivotal position. You're doing a lot of decision-making. So Carter Gordon was brought as the specialist number 10 and then performed perhaps less effectively in, in the previous game. So for the Wales game, he was left on the bench. And instead, Ben Donaldson, who's really more likely to play at full back rather than at fly half, was brought in and he was he's seen as the utility back, but he was brought in to start the game at fly half for the Australians. So we've got a situation where there's already criticism in the media of Eddie Jones's selections. 
Carter Gordon has been criticised for his performance in the previous game, so much so that he was dropped. And now Ben Donaldson, who's not played a lot of his life in this position, is asked to step into the key decision-making role in the match. Talk, Talk to me about, well, talk to me about what you think might go on for a player in that situation. Again, we don't know what actually went on for Ben Donaldson, but but we can we therefore have to generalise out. What might be going on and, and if you were working with a player like that, what would you be saying to him or her? Well, I think it's this is an interesting one because the first question is how psychologically safe does that feel? Uh, this isn't necessarily what I would say to Ben Donaldson, but just analysing it, how psychologically safe are we? Is this situation? What What's the message that's just been given? You don't perform in the previous match, you're dropped. You're not encouraged to say, OK, that was a, a, a difficult match for you. Let's go again. Let's reset. Let's learn from the mistakes. Yeah. No, you're dropped. And we're going to bring in someone that doesn't even play primarily in that position to replace you. So what's Ben Donaldson thinking? Right, I better get yeah. this right or I'm dropped. So probably from a, a, a an emotional reaction point of view, that's the kind of thinking that we that we we he may be experiencing at some level. It may be an unconscious level, but it may be some level of fear around around that position. Then. Has he got the support of his coach? Has he got to what extent has he got the support of his coach and the encouragement of his coach and his teammates? So, so to what extent do we have psychological safety on the pitch once we're there? And crucially, the other thing he's up against is what's in his computer, what's in his programming for how to play this position. Can he tap seamlessly into playing at fly half? Is this something that he's done so regularly that it's second nature here to him? so that he doesn't really have to think about it much. Well, if that's not the case, and he's going to have to think about it, and he's going to have to have maybe adapted his training in the few days between the previous match and this match to try to frantically program his computer to play this role, he's up against it there as well. And if I was working with that player, you know, so much depends on the attitude of the player and the mindset of the player that you're presented with. But it's, it's going to be around... Focusing on what success looks like and and trying to put that sort of idea of what success looks like from take it away from external factors and put it into internal factors and start to talk about, well, what does doing your best in these circumstances look like? Because that's all I know this sounds like a very philosophical point and some people might argue with it. But all you can do in any situation in life is the best that you can do in those circumstances. You can't do better than that. And if anyone says they can, that's a bit crazy because the best you can do in the circumstances is the best you can do. So everyone can say afterwards, oh, I could have done better. But if they if they could right. have done, they would have done. So all you can do is your best in the circumstances, unless you're deliberately sandbagging and deliberately making mistakes. That's a different kettle of fish. So I'd be focusing with this player on, OK, given the circumstances we've got, what does your best look like? What can you control here? What can, what can you influence and what is out of your control? So focus on what you can control and what you can influence and leave worrying about what is out of your control to other people. Right. That's not your concern. And 
we'll have to accept that whatever the outcome is, the outcome is, because all we can do is our best. Now, what does our best, what does doing our best really mean? Well, are we clear on the game plan? Are we clear on our role? Have we got clarity? Do we need to ask more questions of the coaches in order to gain more clarity? And are we clear on how we're going to execute that game plan? So are we clear on what, what we're going to do when we get the ball, what we're going to do without the ball. And again, go back to that point of all you can do is your best to execute that game plan. Now, at the end of the day, you might lose and maybe the Aussies are doing this. and They might be going, well, we had the right game plan, but we executed it really badly. Or we just had the wrong game plan. But we executed it really yeah. well. It's just the wrong game plan. I think it's. The, I, I don't I know because I don't um, know what their game plan was. I think was. Eddie Jones and I think some some pundits believe that it was the right game plan, but it was poorly executed. Executed. Mm. In which case, that's a learning point, isn't it? Yes. Yes, they've lost, and they they they're very very likely to be out of the World Cup. But as a team that's trying to develop and progress, it's a learning point of if you've got a game plan and you don't execute it well, yeah. this is what happens. And so why didn't you execute it well? What were the reasons? And this is, this is analytical. This is not critical. It's not, we're not trying to criticise the team. We're trying to analyse the team and say, what was it that made the execution of this game plan difficult? Was it we're being asked to do things that we don't know how to do or we're not used to doing? Or was it we weren't focused? Was it that we didn't feel psychologically safe out there? And so we were distracted by our own emotions who knows? That's part of the analysis. And an honest team will be able to sit down and get to the root of that. An honest team that feels safe will be able to sit down and get to the root of that. A team that feels unsafe, maybe not. Maybe they won't be able to get to the root of it because there'll be several players there fearful of speaking yeah, it's, up. Yeah, it's, it's very hard so, to know, isn't it, what yeah. will happen next in the Australian camp. So if you look at Eddie Jones, because obviously it's easy to paint him as a sort of autocrat yeah villain, villain who who goes around barking at people you know there are some great stories about him there's a story about him absolutely bawling out one of his assistants really going after this guy in a team meeting when he was England coach and really humiliating the guy in front of the whole team and then later in the day getting in touch with the guy and saying look I'm sorry I realize I've overstepped the mark I was too hard on you on that occasion um, here's look to make amends. Here's a steak. Go home and um, have in, enjoy a couple of steaks with your with your with your missus. And the guy goes, okay, fair enough. Strange choice. And when he gets home, he opens the packet, and there's not steak in there. There's a bag, a, a, a half a dozen sausages, and um, with a message saying, "You're not good enough for steak. You're just sausages, mate." So there's a there's a kind of yeah right humorous but cruel <laughs> whether it's true or not I don't know mm. but there are these stories that come out uh, about him so whether he but but what we're hearing in in his debrief is is pretty humble and saying I take responsibility is that for the media is that because he knows he's leaving anyway there's some speculation around that and and how does that translate to a conversation with the team if what happens is a genuinely humble conversation then that can be a turning point if he was able to take his inner circle of players and 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 coaches just I don't mean everybody necessarily but an inner circle who he sees as the ones who are going to take this team forward and say do you know what I got it wrong this is wrong I'm stuck I don't know what to do here 
but I want us to figure it out. Here's the things I think I can do. What does everyone else think? Then I think that you have the potential springboard for for a transformation of fortunes for the team. And and again, we can look back to the All Blacks in in 2005, who went through exactly that through that process. Graham Henry took the senior players back to his house they locked themselves away for five days and decided to reinvent the the all blacks they built some very strong relationships at that point and started on a journey to transform the team part of the transformation was built around a proposition about how they wanted to play the game to give them an edge so a clear identity which was about playing the ball fast a very fast game keeping the ball alive and then they discovered they didn't have the skills to do it and so they had to go back to the clubs and to the New Zealand Rugby Union and say we need to change the way that kids are developed in in New Zealand because this is how we want to play and we need everyone to have the skill to be able to do it It doesn't matter what numbers on their back they all have to have these fundamental skills to play the rugby that we want as our brand and it took time and eventually they got there they didn't get there in 2007 but in 2011 and 2015 they got they won back-to-back world cups so you do have these turning points which can be transformational for teams rising from phoenix like from the ashes will will that happen for australia well (laughs) we'll see we will see Uh, It's interesting you mentioned that because you may remember, because for listeners that don't know, Jeremy worked with me when I was working with the Great Britain wheelchair rugby team. And we had a setback in 2018 where we went to Australia for the World Championships and finished fourth, where we were hoping to medal for the first time. And we lost the uh, bronze medal match quite heavily. And when I came back, uh, I said to Jeremy, we need to do things fundamentally different and I need some help. I, I need, we need to look at how we're doing things. And this wasn't just me saying this. This was the coach and the players all saying we need to look at ourselves and we need to be better. And how are we going to be better? And that was a big turning point for us because we brought in the concepts, some of the concepts that you work in, specialise in, Jeremy, around team identity and team cohesion. And that really helped us tremendously. And we brought in one or two other new ways of doing things as well. And it was a collective will within the team to be better. The loss in 2018 in that third, fourth playoff was the catalyst for that. And the next three years is history and we we went on to win the gold medal as i'm very fond of reminding everybody (laughs) so but what's interesting another concept i want to bring in for the listeners briefly and we can talk about this again another time maybe but i just want to bring this concept in that of the psychological contract that is made and this is something that is probably quite familiar although you might not know you're doing it or, or might not know that's the name of it you are doing it in business where if you get a new job you will get a paper contract that tells you here are your hours, here's what we're going to pay you, here's your holiday entitlement, here's the pension scheme and here's uh, the life insurance scheme and so on and so forth. These are all the things you're entitled to and this is what we expect of you. And that's the written contract. What also happens, which is much more subtle, is things are agreed but not written down. So the job advert may tell you something about what the job is about. Your interview process, that may inform you a little bit more about what it's like to work there, about what the unwritten expectations of working there are. You may tell the potential employer about the what you need from them, like 
I need to get away early on a Friday because I've got to pick the kids up from school. And the employer, potential employer says, yes, if you get the job, we can definitely accommodate that. That's not going to be written into a contract, but it's there. What's expected of you in the way that you work, what you can offer them in the way that you work. All of these things are part of the unwritten psychological contract that's formed through conversation. And so what then happens is you go to your new job and this psychological contract is in place and things work. And then suddenly something changes. Let's say there's a new manager or the company's taken over or there's just a shift in something something around the organization of the company and suddenly some of the things that were agreed are now no longer there maybe you're asked to do a different job or told to do a different job maybe the picking the kids up from the school on friday you're not now allowed to get away that's that you have to take leave to do that and you may feel aggrieved because your psychological contract is broken the employer may feel aggrieved if you don't do all the things that you said in the interview that you were prepared to do so Psychological contracts need to be carefully negotiated and carefully paid attention to and maintained. Now, I think the same can apply in a sporting context. And think about poor Ben Donaldson, who's told he's coming over with Australia to the World Cup as a utility back. And now he's told he's going to be fly half. So what's what's happening there? So potentially the psychological contract that was created when he was selected has now been broken. So, you know, you asked me earlier about, well, what are some of the things I would do with with Ben Johnson? Well, one of the things I would do is let him vent his frustration, if he feels any, about that, or or maybe his excitement, let him him express his excitement at this new role, and then talk about how do we repair or renegotiate this psychological contract so you can get to a point of acceptance as quickly as possible that the the terrain that you're standing on has shifted and this is the new terrain that you're standing on because once we re-establish the psychological contract we're relatively safe again so this is something i think employers and employees can really focus on is what's the psychological contract being created between you and the person you work for or what's the psychological contract that you're creating between you and the people that you employ and are you paying much attention to the maintenance of that and I think that's really important aspect of this general feeling of psychological safety. Wow, that's a whole area that I think we could do a whole different podcast on, particularly post-COVID and mm. the psychological contract shifted substantially with people <laughs> working from home, which they did to help out their employer. Yep. And now their employers don't want them to do it. Some yep. people are very grateful they want to get back to the office. Many others are less grateful and really don't want to get back to the office. But the contract has definitely shifted psychologically although the written contract probably hasn't Mm. so there's a whole thing Mm. to manage there in 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 this context i i i think there's an assumption that a player should be incredibly grateful to be selected to play for their country and that whatever comes their way is something that they just have to suck it up because they've been selected and and the person who selected them is all powerful and so i imagine that that leads to all sorts of misunderstandings and complexities and a sense amongst many players that they don't have an entitlement to question what they're being asked to do and whilst that may be strictly speaking true that's not an environment which leads to high performance so making it happy and safe and transparent and clear 
these are these are fundamental building blocks for uh, building a successful team and and I think that that good managers know that good coaches know that and they pay attention to that that doesn't mean that they're naturally disposed to behaving in that way because for many of them that wasn't their experience when they were growing up and being coached and and sometimes their own personal story is the baggage which which they need to become aware of and and become able to shake off and and I'm sure that we can go on and talk about that I mean I I've I've been thinking about that just recently with reference to the England team and the relationship between Steve Borthwick Kevin Sinfield and the leaders within that team and how that relationship must be evolving you've got one person in Steve Borthwick who probably well I, I think he doesn't really get into relationships doesn't do the social stuff uh, transparently he's not very self-disclosing he cares passionately of course but but it doesn't necessarily come across you've got Simfield who's got a very different view and then you've got the player leaders but maybe that's for another conversation uh, again in the future yeah Ben Donaldson he started great he had that there was a decision made to go for touch uh, he kicked the ball. It wasn't the best touch finder. Uh, Jack Morgan grabbed the ball after a bad throw in and, and kicked the ball up the pitch. And that was a turning point in the match for sure. He also had a kick charge down in the 23rd minute, which then was swarmed on by Welsh players and led to a, I can't remember if it was a scrum or a penalty, but it certainly, and, and after that we saw him shrink. And his his command seemed to, to disappear, which suggests to me that the mental chatter going on inside his head was reaching full volume and and really overloading him. Yeah. And and of course what you see is becoming very cautious, reverting to type, poor decision making, not scanning as well as he had before, not really showing his talent and, and not yeah. being a natural number ten, it probably made it even more difficult because that that memory bank is not there, that computer's not there to, to fall back on. Of course then who's there to replace him? Well it is Carter Gordon and Carter Gordon yeah. is the guy who's been dropped and has to now step back in and be the saviour. And guess what he's not? Meanwhile, the people who've been through Rugby World Cups before, who've got, in the case of someone like Michael Hooper, got 110, 120 caps, the people who might step up and have that resilience and that fortitude to turn things around, they're back in Australia <laughs> because they weren't selected. Uh, so, yeah, you could, uh, uh, it didn't, the script didn't necessarily have to go this way. But once the script started going that way, you can see how it would be very, very difficult to reverse it. And, and what happens next for Australia, as we said, will be, be very interesting to, to see. And it, it takes a certain psychological skill within a game and between games to reach a point of acceptance of what's just happened right. and move on. Whether something brilliant has just happened or something terrible has just happened, how do we deal with that? And if if we start to feel hijacked by that, if we start to feel threatened by that, if it's like, oh, well, I've just made that mistake, therefore I'm now starting to believe I'm error-prone or I'm now starting to believe I'm not having a good game, then that internal chatter is going to start to interfere with our, our execution of our... And so one of the things that we work on with athletes is 
getting to acceptance quickly, getting to acceptance of just of what has just happened as quickly as possible. And the, the athlete that can do that the best, the athletes that can do that the best are likely to be your most successful right. athletes because they're not then they're not then racked with internal chatter about what's just happened they they've accepted it they've moved on they're now focused on delivering the next piece of skill but that's hard work and each individual has to have their own mental preparation and their own mental processes for being able to let go and for some that will be to exercise their frustrations and we see that in some players who will verbally shout something or punch something or do something that is is a release of some emotion. If you're damn bigger, you shout at your And then they're back focused That's again. His strategy. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So each each individual has their own strategy. And so long as so long as he's discussed right. that with his teammates and negotiated with that with his teammates and said, Look, I'm gonna do it, I don't mean it, but yeah. it's my way of moving on. Yeah. Great, it works, right? So but if you haven't got that, if you haven't thought about that, if you haven't prepared for that, if you're not aware of that then you're likely not to be able to reach acceptance of what has happened. And therefore, you're likely to then be constantly building up more and more levels of anxiety every time right. something goes wrong. And so maybe that's what we started to see with, with the Australian fly halves. And that's what we didn't see with the, with the Welsh fly half, who seemed to, whatever happened, he was able to accept it and move yep. forward. Yeah, I think a very... A very good summary of what happened on the pitch. Well, I guess that might be a great note to wrap things up on. I think we had a little bit of a plan for this podcast before we started, and we certainly haven't stuck to it. So I think we've covered a lot of ground that, that, that has been, to me, very interesting, but which we didn't think we'd cover, which I think is fantastic because it means that on our next podcast about the Rugby World Cup, we will be able to cover some of that stuff and dig in perhaps looking at different teams at the areas to do with uh, player leadership and uh, coach leadership in its different aspects. And I'm certainly looking forward to having that conversation as well. But uh, as ever. I'm laughing because I'm, I'm laughing because I'm looking at the notes that we made. I've, I've realised we haven't talked Excellent. about it. Excellent. It just shows. Ever. It just shows. Well done, us. Sometimes sticking to a plan can be but, like having a straight jacket around you. Yeah. But do you know what, Jeremy? I'm accepting <laughs> it. I've accepted it already. And I'm, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> on that note, David, thanks very much. Goodbye to you and, and goodbye to the listeners. Very much looking forward already to the next conversation and podcast for Super Teams. Thank you and goodbye. 